Welcome to the CRE Exchange Podcast, where we deep dive into the global trends and challenges of CRE professionals across all sectors of the commercial real estate industry. We engage with experts in this space to bring you innovative insights into industry practices, opportunities, and challenges to better inform your decisions. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. On this episode, we bring you a panel discussion from the Altus Connect Conference. Moderator Rick Colvoda sits down with Jeb Belford, Managing Director at Clarion Partners, and Brandon Flickinger, Senior Managing Director at Bridge Investments. Together, they'll discuss CRE macro trends, from interest rates and liquidity to the office property market, looking at the current state of the industry, where it is headed, and what to look out for. Very honored to be here. Really more so honored is just with esteemed, a distinguished group of executives here that we have in the industry that really talking about the challenges we have now in the commercial real estate industry and how we navigate that. I'll have them just to set the stage, each talk a little bit about themselves and their company and the role they play, just so you get perspective as to when they're talking about the challenges, where that persona is coming from. So maybe start, Bren. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Brandon Flickinger. I'm a partner at Bridge Investment Group and chief investment officer of our net lease income fund. Bridge is a publicly traded real estate investment manager. We manage roughly $45 billion across nine different strategies, industrial logistics, multifamily office, opportunity zone, seniors housing, single family rental. Appreciate Altus bringing us down today and really looking forward to this conversation. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jeff Belford. I work for Clarion Partners. I'm the chief investment officer. Clarion has been in business for about 40 years, and we are an equity investor in real estate principally in the U.S., but we also do so in Europe, across property types, uh, all across in all the markets of the, uh, the country. been there for a little over 25 years, and I've had the fortune of doing almost all the different disciplines in our space, from acquisitions to asset management, portfolio management, now being the CIO. That's who I am, and delighted to be here. Thank you. So maybe just to set the stage to start out is, I'll go to each of you and ask, what is the biggest challenge that you see in the industry today? And if you want to relate it to something specific that whether you or your company is facing, feel free to do that or give some context around it. Um, What is the biggest challenge? Sure. Nothing novel here. Our investors are concerned about the impacts in the macro economy on their real estate investments. The largely decisions are bounded by the downside risks of slowing growth constriction of credit in an inflationary environment. And what does that mean for their investments, both current and future? And what guides their capital into various asset classes? And how are we acting as stewards of their capital? And so spending a lot of time with our investor base, with our LPs, really trying to communicate our opinion and perspective on where things are going. And but generally, that's it. It's a level of concern. The markets are risk off. People are largely concerned about valuations and the investment environment broadly. And we can take that down a variety of channels. But I think that's a good starting point. To me, the very simple fundamental question ahead of us, which is, I think, the biggest, is how to, what's the cost of capital in our space? What's the cost of debt capital? And what's the cost of equity capital? And are we in a period where that's changing? Right. Are we going from something that we lived with, arguably from kind of 2002, 2003, all the way up through just before today of a certain return expectation in our space? And are we moving to something different or not? Like that is a super fundamental question. That's why I think everybody's largely, well, debating it and largely on the sidelines because we don't know where it's going to land. That's the critical issue. So a big part of this uncertainty is just 
don't know where things are going to go in the near term, much less the longer term. But maybe I hear credit and I hear equity, the cost of, of that. Let's talk about credit first. What will it take before there's more certainty around the cost of, of debt and what will free that up to allow there to be credit for acquisitions? It really varies by the asset class. I think a lot of owners, borrowers, investors are shell-shocked what's going on. If you were a lender and made a 55 to 60% loan on a stabilized office asset, never occurred to you that your position may be underwater. And then looking at the industrial side, you've got an asset class that's performing really well, but you've got some broken capital structures where people bought long duration assets and financed them with short-term floating rate paper. And that creates a different set of issues and opportunities as well. And so it really is becoming increasingly important that we talk about this on an asset class by asset class basis rather than cap rates or credit or just real estate. And maybe Jeb, maybe I'll throw it from the equity side is the cost of equity. And we hear a lot about dry powder, a lot of investors wanting to invest and just waiting for price discovery. Is there a lot of dry powder out there? Is there a lot of equity capital? It sure feels so. And looking at stats, let's go back pre-COVID or even take the period kind of between COVID and now. Looking at a lot of stats of all the capital that had been raised that had yet not yet been deployed. And you certainly felt that on the ground when you're trying to make investments. Like the competition was fierce. So obviously in the height of COVID, when the world kind of stopped and once debt rates went up earlier last year and transactions have gone down, you don't feel that competition, but otherwise the competition is incredibly fierce. The suspicion is that capital is still there. Real estate is still a long-term attractive asset class, not that we don't have a few issues to deal with, but we've got some remarkably good parts of our space and we've got a couple of troubled parts of our space. But our feeling is that real estate sectors and asset class is going to remain very desirable in the eyes of most investment portfolios. So that means the capital's there. It's just a question of when does it free up? So our perspective would, it's absolutely there, and but it's not going to be comfortable investing until we see a settling out of my first issue, which is how to price our space. And if we follow that up, we really need to know where the cost of debt capital is going to land first, because that's going to tell us a lot about how we're going to price our equity capital. And once that starts to settle wherever it's going to settle, you're going to start to see, in my opinion, the capital flowing and probably kept flowing in a much bigger volume than you might expect. But expand on that. And I agree that near-term concerns and uncertainty and bridge what's guiding our growth and plan is that if you look at the U.S. wealth management space, unverified, but roughly 600 to $700 trillion, and that's all the investable capital by U.S. taxpaying citizens and pension funds, endowments, et cetera. And that has a roughly two to 3% penetration right now into alts. So real estate, private credit, private equity. And most of the big investment managers had their investor conferences in the fourth quarter and the first quarter and are really orienting their growth around downstream capital and taking that market share or that allocation from two to 3% to 5% plus. So really potential robust capital inflows into the space long-term versus this near-term uncertainty that we're all dealing with on a daily basis. A lot of this uncertainty, I think you mentioned, Brandon, about macroeconomic conditions right now. What's the one macroeconomic factor that you watch? Is it inflation? Is it jobs? Is it interest rates? It's hard to say just one. I mean, my goal is not to come up here and just piggyback yeah. off Jeb's comments all day. It's uncertainty. And you look at this morning, I was watching CNBC before I came down and 
you look at the federal funds rate, the Fed is saying it's going to be roughly 5.4% by a year end potentially. And the market's saying it's going to be 70 basis points lower, anticipating a cut and reversion in policy. And so that's a big variance. I'm not in the business of betting against the Fed, but there's a lot of capital that's doing so. And again, until we see refined terra firma, it's going to be difficult to turn the faucet back on. And to me, that's what's so interesting is there is such a wide difference of opinion on where it's going to settle. That's essentially why we're not seeing levels of transactions. There's no conviction on whether, again, we're going to go back to a relatively lower cost of capital world, and therefore the pricing we had for 10 years is fine. We're just waiting to go back to it. Or whether, again, we're going to something that's meaningfully different, and therefore I have to really think about pricing everything that way. It's frozen everybody, essentially. I was going to save this for the lightning round later at the end, but you kind of preempted it with the 5.4 versus 70 basis points. I'll just go across, maybe start with you, Mark. Where do you think interest rates? There's obviously a wide divergence in, in belief where it is. Maybe this is now each of you personally, where do you think based on, and if it, if you can't say that based on your company, talk about what your company's view is, but. Well, let me start, but, and I'm going to give you my personal opinion at the end, but let me just give you like how we've thought about framing as a company, because to said a second ago, there's a wide range of opinion where rates are going to settle, borrowing rates are going to settle, and therefore your cost of your cap rates and your IRRs and your cost of equity is going to settle. And I would say, again, to, on the more optimistic side, it's a return to the world that we, the pre-COVID world, right? We're going back to four, four cap rates and six IRRs, and the treasury is going to be two and a half, and we're going to be able to borrow it for, like, just make it, there's just super nice round numbers. Obviously, it's way more complicated than different property types are going to price differently, but just that's for a good property type world. Right. And on kind of the other end, you're talking about a 4% treasury borrowing in the high fives and probably a high fives, mid to high fives cap rate. That's pretty different. Right. So that's the spread that I think we're all talking about. We as a firm would tend to say we're kind of somewhere in the middle and maybe slightly on the optimistic side of the middle. But the framework, we created that framework to think about it because what do you do now? Do you just sit here and do nothing and wait until that issue settles itself out and then transact? Or are there opportunities out there today that you can take advantage of? So the simple way we've thought about that is if we can kind of price assets, not that there are a zillion of them, but price assets to the downside, knowing that if it turns out to be the upside, they'll look really good, then we're willing to invest. And if an asset's pricing to kind of the middle or to the more optimistic case, we're not a buyer. So that's the way we've chosen to navigate it. If you had to ask us our bias, and my personal bias, it's like middle to slightly better than that, but it's enough uncertain that I don't think you can invest on that bias. You would ask, where do I think rates are a year from now? And so I'll answer that question. I think they're about the same or marginally higher. I'm in the higher for longer camp. I think the Fed is initially, they started this description off as transitory inflation. Clearly that's not been the case. If you look at the Fed, but also the regional Fed presidents, they've been pretty uniform in their communication to the market that 25 bips, the Fed funds rate next meeting is a foregone conclusion. The market thinks that's going to be a cause for pivots, but increasingly they're committed to fighting inflation. And I think that's going to result in higher for longer. Energy prices are re-entering the discussion at the worst possible time. You've got inventory concerns that are driving inflation. And so I think that we've seen a decrease in the growth of inflation, certainly not going to bet against the Fed. I think it's higher for longer. Higher for longer. And let's just say that results in a recession. And does the Fed pivot at that point and adjust to where? Yeah. Well, so we've had 
13 recessions since World War II. And the case can be made that this was the most predicted recession if we have one. And so I think the outcome remains, we still have an economy that's doing relatively strong in most material metrics, but certainly has some challenges and those challenges are increasing. But I think the Fed is going to break something and that's going to cause a pivot. But I think, again, I'm higher for longer. Maybe I'll go a slightly different direction with this one because we haven't talked much about kind of what's going on on the ground on the real estate. We've talked more about the capital markets so far up here, but this is going to sound a little bit funny, but we're in an economic slowdown now. And whether it turns into a recession or a mild recession, to me, it doesn't matter that much. We're kind of expecting that slowdown. And when we pierce through to look at what's going on in the property types, though, we know which ones are relatively healthy fundamentally. We know which ones are challenged. Whether we have no recession or a mild recession is not really going to change the trajectory of those. And we spend a lot of our time trying to figure out where the fundamentals going for any particular property type or geography. So where do we want to invest and not want to invest? So it's not so much a recession question unless it becomes a really big nasty of in which case demand will then get hit and that'll be an incremental headwind for our space. But it's more to us about the fundamentals, what's going on property type, where's it good, where's it not good, where do you want to be invested, where do you not want to be invested? And that informs a lot of our framework. Okay. Then maybe back to you, Jeb, where you mentioned, and we hear a lot about the bid-ask spread. Buyers are bidding here, but sellers are asking here. And you said you're looking for opportunities at the lower end of the range. Are you finding opportunities? Are there sellers out there? Are there distressed sellers? And then I'll go to the other panelists. Where do you see opportunities in a market where very few transactions, bid-ask spreads. The few is the critical thing. So there aren't a trillion of, but there are circumstances where people need to or have decided to sell, right? So if you're out there proactive in the market, you've got a pretty good process. There are transactions that come across that have come across in the last six or eight months that do, in our opinion, underwrite to kind of that more negative scenario. And therefore you feel comfortable buying them. And investing in them now. But there aren't many. I mean, that's the whole problem with the space. There aren't many transactions. The sellers aren't willing to, in general, capitulate to that. The buyers aren't willing to commit at where the sellers want to or would sell. And or we're going to stay in that state until we get some sort of resolution on where we're pricing capital. But there are some out there. We've done about a handful that we think we feel really good about. I'll start generally and maybe give some specific data points, but we're just seeing very few right-of-way institutionally marketed transactions. That's not a novel perspective. This concept of event-driven transactions is increasingly the norm in an environment where transaction volumes are down anywhere from 50 to 65% based on your data source. We acquired an asset. And so that event-driven theory doesn't necessarily need to mean something's going on at the asset level. We acquired a stabilized industrial asset two weeks ago because the seller had a liquidity need resulting from some challenges in their non-real estate operating business. Some interesting opportunities we're seeing are in the sale leaseback space. We talk about what's happening in the credit markets. Sale leasebacks are increasingly an attractive alternative for companies, particularly sub-investment grade companies who the borrowing costs have skyrocketed. And so suddenly the cap rate on a long-term sale leaseback is really compelling on a spread basis to where their corporate borrowing costs are. And that hasn't always been the case. I think we're starting, we're like in the top of the first with some loan pool activity and haven't seen any real loan pool sales materialize, but our debt strategies fund bid on a large office loan pool the week before last and expectations from the selling bank were in the 90-ish percent of par and we were 30 points wide of that. And so, Jeb, to your point, I agree that in that scenario, typically it's not the buyers who are going to capitulate, it's going to be the banks. So I think there's so much discovery yet to be uncovered. And I think on that point, it's going to be very interesting to see how the borrowers and the lenders 
behave in situation where, where either it's a healthy property type and you just have a recapitalization issue, or for example, office, where it's both a fundamentals issue and a recapitalization issue. Are we going to see a lot of foreclosures? Are we going to see a lot of negotiating and workouts? Are we going to see pretend and extent? And it's still too early to see, in my opinion, what the general flavor of that negotiation is going to be. And a lot of things will depend on that, especially if you're a distressed buyer. So that's a good segue into our Next three hours of discussion on office, <laughs> office market. Right now, I guess, is with offices, you hear about the have, the have nots, the comparison to what malls were 10, 15 years ago and the transition that they went to is maybe just a general question is, what do you see as the future of office? Where is office going? You hear a lot about bifurcation or trifurcation, which properties and that. Your thoughts or viewpoints just on where office is going? Well, I guess where, I'd, where I'm a little suspicious on that is two fronts. So people that know the properties the best are the current owners. To kind of get where you're going, I think you need one of two things. You either need a new capital source that's willing to step in and partner with the bank and say, I'm making an investment. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to solve the problem, but I don't see who that capital source is today. I don't know who that is. So, but historically, when the property types all kind of performed in a band, you'd always have somebody that's willing to take the other side of the bet. We don't really have that today. I'm not saying it won't develop, but we don't have that today. So another solution would be service providers. Somebody creates a, I'm the office, solve the problem, third party, and you're going to hire me to just come do that. And I'm not putting in any equity. I'll be the expertise. And I'm not sure I totally believe that one. So I think the more likely outcome, this is a personal opinion, is that there's going to be a lot of existing borrowers working together to try to figure it out. And they're going to be lenient with each other and try to create solutions that give everybody time. I think it's going to be two to three years before we know what the future of office investment looks like. If anyone knows how to underwrite the residual value of an office building that's not priced to the downside, I'd love to buy you dinner. Well, and what's the downside though? That's the problem. The downside is, who knows? I know I threw that out there without knowing the answer. And one of you described it really well on the prep call. This is an experiment. When COVID pandemic started, yeah. we all went home and said, we're never coming back to the office. And it started to swing the other way. Even tech companies recently in the past quarter said, all right, you guys have to come back following law firms, investment firms, and real estate companies and using real estate as proxy for the experiment. We're unique in that we invest in the assets we occupy, which is can't be said of the other industries, but our business is an apprentice business from our perspective. The young people learn from the people they work for. That's really difficult to do if everyone's remote all the time. And so the point is, we don't know. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. We've from early on, we said, like, we just don't know how this is all going to end. We were certainly very hopeful it was going to be a relatively short COVID period, in which case, I, my personal opinion then would have been, it would have gone right back to normal. Yeah. But it turned out to be far too long. It's really changed behavioral patterns from individuals and companies alike. And we're in the middle of it. Like, office leases are long. Companies make decisions over a long period of time. They're all trying to figure it out, too. So I don't think it's going to be a quick six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, I completely agree with you. It's going to take a while for the whole operation of the space and how companies and employees interact with the office building to get a sense of where there's, where the market's going on that. And that's just going to make it super uncertain, very awkward to want to invest. And I think we're going to be just like you in that for a while. I say downsides land value, but I'm not sure what land value is. Office building. Well, you know, and people have talked a lot about repurposing the buildings. And it's super awesome, great intellectual idea to just take all the office buildings that we don't need and turn them into apartments, which we need. But it's super hard, super costly, usually uneconomic. If it were easy, you would have seen a whole bunch of situations where it would have already, and you're not. 
So that's unfortunately not the magic solution. But I don't think many of us believe the office is going away completely. There's still a huge need for office space. It's just which buildings and how are they used? And one of the most interesting things that we've seen is such, and you made the comment a second ago, is how widespread the dispersion inside the office world really is. We cannot really paint it with one brush. We've seen buildings, top new buildings in a bunch of markets, garnering rental rates that were unfathomably high, significantly higher than pre-COVID because they're the best buildings. They're full, they're leasing, they're valuable. They're likely going to stay valuable until something else becomes the next best building. It's easy to try to say it's going to be the top 5% of the buildings and everything else. But I, I also don't believe that, right? There's a much bigger need for actually office space. Even if you posit that we only need 60% or half the office space that we used to have, that's still a lot of extra buildings that you got to use. Which buildings are going to be the next rung down and completely solid survivors? Which ones are going to survive but limp along? Which ones are going to be completely awful? That's a huge question. We all have opinions on that. We travel in that world all the time. We think we know which buildings are going to be the best ones and not the best ones. But that's all settling out too. And we're going to have to see how that settles out. We're going to have to see how pricing for each of those levels settles out. We just don't know that. So a big part of the issues with the office was talked about, it's, and Dr. Gupta talked about it, is technology and Zoom and Teams and everything that's being used. And the big question is, will and that's the experiment that you talked about is, will people come back to the office? Will we need workers back to the office? Or is the new norm, they're not back from home, back. We had a very good discussion at breakfast this morning about the need to get people to back, the interaction, the serendipitous nature of interaction around the water cooler and that. I tell my staff is you can do your job from home, but you can't do your career from home. That human interaction is very important. What do you see in terms of, and I know it's an experiment, but what do you see in terms of, will we get back to maybe closer to the norm? Because I think a lot of companies are pushing for people to come back, but are they really coming back just because it is so easy now to work from home? You talk about the norm. Most other metrics are back to the norm. NBA game attendance is back to pre-COVID levels. TSA line volumes are back to pre-COVID levels and office card swipes are 40 to 50%. It's really fascinating. And you have to ask yourself, which businesses are better off having everybody remote more often than being in the office and particularly the financial component of it. Rent is not a material component of an income statement for most businesses. So rent and OPEX. So it's a long way of me not answering your question, but I think it's yet to be played out. But there's a lot of compelling reasons to suggest that it's swung too far to the remote work component of the. Yeah. And from our perspective, we've seen. It's all over the board. All of us probably know companies that have been back five zero since six months after the pandemic started, and that's their culture. Well, and they haven't changed. And they've been able to pull that off fewer and further between. But we've seen people that have taken a whole chunk of people and said, you're fully remote, but all the rest of you people are in most of the time. Yeah. We've done a lot of three twos and four ones and two threes and people experimenting a little more, although not widespread, in my opinion, with hoteling or hot desking, whatever. But that's all part of the experiment, though. We don't, it's all a big mash of people and companies doing different. We don't know, again, where that's going to land. We don't even know if there's going to be a norm going forward. It might be different for different industries. So that, that makes it just really hard to see where the fundamentals go. It re- makes it really hard to see where you think rents are going to go. It makes it a little harder to see where you think good buildings versus bad buildings are going to go. And that's just going to prolong the uncertainty about investing in this space. It also depends on whether you've got the fortitude to actually change the way people interact with space. Like 
you're going to say to everybody, sorry, you can't have your office anymore, right? You only have a desk. Some places will do that. Some yeah. places won't do that, right? So even if you could get away with less space, you're not going to get away with less space. And again, we're seeing companies do different things, right? One thing we haven't mentioned on this topic, though, is really the balance of power between the employer and employee. The graph that was shown a little earlier with all sorts of more jobs than employees, the balance of power is not going to shift back to the employer until the, those lines cross again. Then you might actually see behavior change. And I think we all know of individual instances where something's happened to the company and all of a sudden, like, everybody's got to get in there and they're now back full time. But in general, that's in general, the balance of powers with the employee and the employee at the moment and not the employer. And it'll be interesting to see, actually have a recession, we actually lose some jobs like we would normally do, whether that balance of power shifts. And will that happen? I know we're beating this topic pretty hard here, but another thing that we haven't really mentioned yet is the difference between different cities, right? Not every city is behaving the same way when it comes to back in the office. I would say, at least in our experience, a lot of sort of the Texas cities, you know, lots of people were back pretty early, full time. There is no COVID type thing. And there never was. But a city that's got significant commuting issues like New York, where I live, like it's a much bigger challenge as a employer and boss to get the people to come in. So there are places where it is less challenging and therefore I think you see more people in the office and more challenging and less, but that equation is not consistent across the whole sphere of markets either, right? We've seen a bunch of markets where it's really not hard to get to the office and people aren't, right? So it almost comes down to a psychology of the market type thing, which is very interesting. Maybe I'll throw out where, oh, five minutes left, I guess. I did want the opportunity, if anybody had a question, feel free. I think there's someone going around with mics, but maybe just, I did want to come back to maybe something a little, we talked a lot about office and with banks, maybe something back to a little more positive perspective. <laughs> is Brandon, you mentioned earlier, and there's a lot of talk, okay, office, a lot of challenges, not only from a pricing perspective, but also fundamentals. You mentioned, I believe it was industrial, multifamily, and Jeb, you mentioned as well. Is there any concerns for multifamily or industrial? Is it all look, obviously some of the expectations have dropped from what it was, let's say a year ago, but are you still pretty optimistic about those sectors? Generally, I'll speak to industrial, generally optimistic about industrial, but I'm a pessimist by nature. I think the thing we're focused on, if you take the 50 largest markets of consequence in the US, they've got a plus or minus 4% vacancy rate right now. And we're certainly not expecting to see 40% rent growth over a 36 month period, but should be somewhere in the high single digits, low double digits, which is really fantastic. I think what's more interesting is the underlying tenant credit we've seen so many businesses able to sustain themselves in a zero rate environment. And if I'm a business that needs permanent capital to finance my operations in this environment, that's really challenging and really, it's certainly become more scarce. It's certainly become more expensive. And so we're looking at businesses and making sure that our tenants are credit worthy and that they generate a lot of free cash flow and are appropriately leveraged based on their operating profile. And so steering away from companies that have more of a growth or venture capital profile, because I think that those businesses have some difficult times ahead. We believe there's a lot of zombie corporations in the U.S. that have been able to last as long as they have because of cheap capital. And again, that's become more scarce and more expensive. Positive and a negative in your question there. Now, let me make one sort of perspective comment and then come back to what, what looks good as opposed to looking challenged to spend a lot of time on. But right now, the overall NACREF index is probably like a little over 20% office. Same thing with the Odyssey. It's probably like in the low 20s. Our current problem child is only 20% of our space. There's probably another 
call it five or 6% that are still in malls. Malls have taken a big hit already. They've kind of stabilized. They're not in the news headlines about being the problem. But you certainly wouldn't call it a super healthy sector, but that leaves 30 to 35% in industrial, high 20s percent in multifamily. It leaves a good, a decent sort of like seven, 8% in sort of necessity level retail. Aside from all the alternative sectors, which again, we haven't talked about much, many of which look pretty solid. So you've got a huge chunk of our space where the fundamentals look still really good. And we would say pretty bullish on the fundamentals for industrial, for multifamily in general, for how other housing property types in general, for life science, for self-storage, necessity retail. That's all looking really solid on the ground, right? Now, will we see a few capitalization issues in the multifamily world, for example, where somebody borrowed too much when they bought it at a three cap rate and it's not worth a three cap rate anymore. And now they have a refinancing challenge. Yeah, they, you're going to see some of that, but they're going to be ready, willing, and able buyers to step in and take those assets because the sector looks attractive. So a huge chunk of our space, an overwhelmingly huge chunk of space for our space, in my opinion, is looking in really good shape. We do have a problem child that we've got to deal with, which is office. But again, fundamentally, we're pretty solid. I think you're going to see as a consequence a continued big movement out of the bigger property types into the alts because office is going to be difficult and parts of retail are going to be difficult. So you're going to see increasing activity there. Again, fundamentals look good. So there's a lot to be taken, in my opinion, on the positive side fundamentally, although we still have a big question of where the capital markets sell. Okay. Good. Listen, thank you very much. Very interesting. <laughs> thank you for listening to the CRE Exchange podcast powered by Altus Group. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. At Altus, we bring together capabilities across technology, analytics, valuations, tax, and development advisory services. We are guided by bold thinking, integrity, and inclusivity, partnering with CRE professionals to maximize opportunities with exceptional service experience. Find out more at altusgroup.com.